Ahoy there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Center in St. Kilder. Did you ever hear the crow in the sky going, Ah, ah, ah. That stands for reuse, reuse, recycle. And you heard it first on 3CR. This week on The Renegade Economist, we're shaking things up a little uh, by inviting the online sensation Friendly Geordies onto the the 3CR airwaves here. And for those who don't know, Friendly Geordies has about 86,000 YouTube subscribers. He put up a uh, hip-hop video that had 220,000 views in uh, 36 hours. So uh, uh, just prior to Christmas, he did a pricey of our speculative vacancies report which has had about 140,000 views so friendly great to have you on the show Uh, thanks so much for uh, all the work you're doing and gee it must be just such an adventurous uh, lifestyle you live uh, cranking out all of these videos and copying um, lots of support and the occasional um, truckload of abuse too Uh, occasional (laughs) I wish Man, today somebody on the net said, like, I'm trying to find where you live and I'm going to kill you. For what? Making fun of Aussie hip-hop. I didn't realise it was such a hot button. But yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, I don't know, like, more positive than good. So, yeah, I suppose thanks for the compliment, Carl. <laughs> well, it's amazing to see a hundred plus comments at least to everything you put up there, and you've certainly got a finger on the button of relevance. So uh, it was great that you saw our line of economics and the role of uh, vacant housing affecting so many young people, and uh, you put that into play with with quite a funny uh, little take on it, and. For the listener's benefit, uh, let's just have a listen to some of that clip now. I hate poor people. They eat too many potatoes. But essentially because he was lobbied by his huge-scale property investors to turn a basic human need, shelter, into one of those commodities like diamonds in South Africa by creating artificial scarcity. They buy up all the houses in a region. That makes it look like there is no houses, which makes it look like they're rare, so the value artificially increases. And then they sell those houses just like diamonds an artificially inflated price, meaning that housing in Australia, by and large, is not worth what we're paying for them. In some cases, it's been artificially inflated by 30%. In fact, in the December quarter of 2013, property prices in Australia rose $184 billion in three months. That doesn't happen naturally. That happens when the rich get a Monopoly, the game everyone's heard of but no one wants to play. So, Friendly, what really grabbed your attention when you saw this report online and decided, heck, I'm going to email these guys and see what I can do to help? You know, the main point was, everybody knows about, oh, vaguely, and by everybody I mean nowhere near enough people. So, you know, tiny politician of the population, but if you do know anything about land and value, like I do, so you know two things, right? The negative gearing is screwing it up for our generation because a bunch of 40-year-olds want to have more than just a, a vacation house down like down on the coast, right? That's annoying enough. And then you hear about capital gains tax, and then you hear that John Howard screwed the economy purely to make property investors rich, and you think, okay, that's really sinister. But then when you guys kicked it in and said that uh, 
essentially what's happened now is that the housing price of uh, property in Australia is, is kind of getting geared exactly by the whim of these property investors. Just the, the, the way that it, it kind of was described to me is that it's just like diamonds in South Africa. They're not actually worth anywhere near the price of what they're sold for. And that's what grabbed me. I didn't realise that that was a thing that was happening in Australia at the moment. And especially on something like housing, right? That's... I can't think of anything more evil than the guy, that Nestle guy that's trying to make all the water in the world privatised. It's like evil second to that. It's one of the three needs in life, isn't it? It's like earth, food, shelter. And one of them, they're kind of just going, no, well, you know, if you want, if you want a house for your sweetheart, you've got to, it's, it's top dollar. They're just not around. They're not available. But you guys expose that it actually is available. It's just artificially increased. That's what I got from it anyway. I could be completely wrong on this. I'm not that well educated on the subject. Yeah, well, that's certainly the case, and it's it's this uh, unnatural advantage that property owners have that uh, allows them to withhold property from the market and barely be penalised for it, and and that's what leads to this artificial scarcity. So it's great that our message is getting through, and part of the challenge is how do we break it down for um, people who aren't so much into reading 50-odd page reports and so forth, but uh, uh, that is the challenge, is how to get young people worded up on, on these issues that are consigning them to a life in a dark hovel, if you like, and it's that cost. Do you want to live in a dark hovel or uh, a world without much debt uh, where you're living within a community that's not going to be stripped apart? Because that's one of the other big processes is whenever you do find a house that's affordable, uh, generally... uh, there are good people living nearby and you work in your community to create good community gardens and cafes and whatnot. And, of course, who benefits from all that? The property speculators. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a challenge for policy makers to get a grip on this and people like Saul Eslake say, look, there's just too many people who own property to ever change the system. But uh, I'm trying to get the numbers on how many people are paying more than 40 to 50% of their money on somewhere to rent or on their mortgage. And I reckon those numbers must be getting close to a tipping point because so many people in the last 10, 15 years have just taken out record debts to uh, basically afford a second-hand house. Because that's what I was seeing that the other day, that while researching this, you see that this is coming up more and more in the headlines that we're reaching a housing crisis, right? But the problem is, as you pointed out in the report, that I think it's 32% of property now is owned by property investors, at least. I don't know where you go from there. Like it, it just seems like it's one of those things where it's too far gone. It seems like you would actually have to have kind of like a land revolution to, <laughs> you know what I mean? Just you, you'd have to be blood involved in that. that. That's the only way that I see this. I don't know if that's right or wrong, but like I, I mean, like as you guys were pointing out, that a land tax would be obviously ideal. And as far as I know, which is not at all, that sounds great. But but would anyone, even if there was like a tipping point, do you think the policymakers would have the chutzpah to change it? 
Well, as some of our colleagues have shown, uh, uh, Philip Seuss and Lindsay David, uh, the amount of property owned by uh, our MPs is staggering. And I had a, uh, a British housing advocate on the show last year, and he was just—he was almost spitting into the phone about how angry he was that 43% of MPs in uh, UK House of Commons uh, owned real estate. And, and I said to him, "Well." Sorry, mate. Uh, we're we're more than double that. We're about ninety four percent here in Australia. And oh my god! He just about dropped the phone. And to think <laughs> that um, uh, Joe Hockey, you know, thankfully he's retired, but he comes from a real estate dynasty. His dad runs hockeys.com.au real estate. Uh, got all his uh, cousins and uncles involved in that um, little organisation. And Scott Morrison, the new treasurer, he said some intelligent things, I must say, but uh, I've, I've got my fingers, my toes, everything crossed that he's going to be representing the public interest rather than the vested interest because about a decade ago, uh, he was the head of research at the Property Council of Australia. Well, that's promising, isn't it? It's Especially very... with 94. Who doesn't own it? That, that, like, that, that's, that's, the more, that's, the, that's the key point, right? Like, if, if somebody doesn't own... It must just be at this point that everybody's kind of like, you know, this, this, this horse has run. Obviously, property is such a good investment. You, you may as well get in on it if you know it, right? Like, it's like when I... When, as soon as I stopped listening to you guys, I started listening because you said that listening to podcasts about real estate investment, after you hear the sinister impact that this has on a macroeconomic scale, and you hear about all these podcasts about how to get rich in seven days and those kind of ones, they're all saying the same thing that you guys are saying, except that they're just focusing on you, right? And it seems like a great investment on that level. Because like, what, what you were saying about it being that Stock prices are nowhere near as good of an investment as housing. What else are these other politicians doing? They must be the like they just must be Bernie Sanders of Australia, right? There's no way that there's like anybody here. There's no one else making investments in anything else other than housing. If you're smart in Australia at this point, it's just easily the best one. Well, a lot of people say Nick Xenophon is, you know, one of the few shining lights in, in Parliament, an independent voice. Well, for a long time, he has been the largest property owner in the Senate. I think that might have uh, changed of recent, but he's someone who actively works against us and is, you know, he says he's wound back his stance on it, but uh, one of the big uh, policy fraud uh, possibilities we're wary of is government allowing uh, first-home buyers access to their superannuation so they can have that as a deposit. Now, uh, Matthew Ellis from the Radical Rational blog has been very uh, active in campaigning him on that and he says that he has turned around his position on it but he's still looking at some way to give youngsters access to cheap finance and unfortunately all these sort of things whether it's a first homeowner's grant or, or you know access to half price interest rates uh, from some government borrowing agency all that does is give us more capacity to bid higher and higher prices and when that happens uh, the land prices go up and really it's a seller's subsidy my god so there's no one in the australian senate or uh, or lower house that is actually looking out at this problem 
at the moment. Well, there's been three parliamentary inquiries into housing affordability and up in Sydney, John Alexander, the former tennis great, has come out and said some uh, rather extraordinary statements about uh, a mortgage... I can't remember the exact quote, but it was something like a mortgage is equivalent to debt slavery was the the line of thinking. And that really surprised me because I thought here he was some sort of uh, safe thinking politician and uh, he was hitting it hard. So there are people in Parliament trying to do the right thing, but whenever we meet them behind closed doors, they say, look, we know that your system is the most efficient and fairest way to, to, to fund government, but there's just not enough political support for it. So that's where we need, you know, a thousand other high-profile people like yourself to be uh, pushing this agenda so that we can have some sort of intergenerational equity and a a fair sense of um, reward for effort. And that's probably the most frustrating thing when you hear some of these um, uh, podcasts out there uh, bragging about spending half a day a week managing their uh, six or seven investment properties that are all pulling in thousands of dollars in in rents. Yeah, because you realise after listening to you, yeah, okay, you're rich, but you are essentially like a feudal king. That is what you are in this society. But uh, if you... If you were demanding that they also grew turnips in the in in the backyard, right? There would be no difference between you and them. It's it's really staggering to see that society doesn't seem to have changed much. In that, as you guys, land is key to wealth, and it seems to have just been forgotten in this new economic system. That no, 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 it's all just about companies and you know just pulling a few levers at the top. And no, it's still land is like key to this. But then there was something that I was looking at uh, through these podcasts, and one of them was saying, in defense of negative gearing and capital gains. And I'm sure it's wrong, but can you please disseminate it for me, because I don't know how to answer this. He was saying that eventually when these, you should be able to deduct tax on negative gearing, for instance, because property investment, like anything else, is just a job where you can become a billionaire. But the, these ones... He was saying that you should be able to negatively gear your house because eventually it will become positively geared. At that point, you are paying tax back into the system. And so if they stop that, uh, you're not allowed to claim losses. It should be seen as like claiming losses on a business or something like that because it essentially is a business. And in the long run, it is better for the tax system. Do you agree with that? Certainly not. And <laughs> What is the problem? Exactly. <laughs> what well, the thing is that it's it's not actually a business where there is incredible risk involved. And the core point is that uh, it's the public that creates the value for this so-called business of owning a prime location. And so wherever a new train line's um, built or a station improved or a new cafe set up or even a new community garden, it's that that adds value to their business. So one of the sore points with negative gearing is that you can basically spend too much on a house because you you expect that it will go up in value over the next 10, 15 years, maybe even less. 
especially with interest-only loans. My God, finally we have people who are up in arms about interest-only loans. But um, I digress. So what happens is that um, uh, they're able to write off their tax losses because they spent so much on the property that the rent they're charging doesn't cover their mortgage costs. And so when that happens, they can write that loss off against their actual day job, against their income. So that is a real pity that, well, it's actually more than a pity, it's a goddamn tragedy that that can occur. So uh, it should be quarantined just to the property itself and it should be limited to new buildings only not on you know old buildings old homes so 92 93% of negative gearing investment goes into existing homes and it doesn't actually add to the supply so that's one of the core points here on 3CR's Renegade Economists. This week we're discussing with the online sensation Friendly Geordies. I'll have the links to his work in the show notes, but uh, you'll probably have seen some of his videos on Facebook or YouTube or somewhere on the internet, taking the mickey out of someone. And we were lucky that he did a, a bit of a job on the the property investment advantages as uh, demonstrated in our, our vacant housing report. That's 82,724 homes that all must be secret eco-mansions. Welcome, I'm your butler today, sir. A chimp that drinks sand. As all these investment properties are using less than 50 litres of water a day. Come on. Do you know how many litres a leaking tap uses? Yes, as a matter of fact, I do. I spent an entire Saturday counting it once. It is... 55 litres. Okay, thanks for doing that, but seriously, get a life. So if all these investment properties are using less water than a leaking tap, either they're all illegal test labs for wicked witches of the West wondering... (sighs) Still not immune. So friendly, does that make sense about negative gearing? It's not really a business. They're they're making hay out of the community's efforts to improve their community and then they're able to to write off their overinvestment against their income and uh, cost us, you know, some two to four billion dollars a year in tax expenditure. Yeah. Especially when their comeback is like I I provide good Affordable, well, not even affordable, but they say that anyway. Affordable housing, quality housing, and that's my business. But really, what do you do? If somebody rings up and says, my toilet's broken, then they'll groan and grumble and get the cheapest quote they can and make it barely functional, right? They, they, that, that's, that's really the, most, the, the biggest expense that they have out of it. And essentially, what you're saying is, that really the only reason why their property is increasing is because of the economic activity within the region they have nothing to do with at all. But they're saying that, no, I'm, I'm putting in my bid. No, you just... It's, that, it's, it's literally that easy. It's kind of just like they've just planted a tree. That's about it. And they don't have to, they don't have to spray for pesticides or anything like that. It kind of just grows its own fruit and then they just come over and pick it and go, I heard this. It really seems to be that's the level of... That's the level of involvement that a property investor has. So as a general question, which is what I've been wondering, just as educated as the questions I've asked before, where do you reckon property investors are in terms of evil? In terms of 
Do you think that mining magnates are worse for Australia or property investors or bankers? Which one, if you, if you were to put them in a ranking system, would you say that they're like at least property investors are doing something? Or are they really just like the multinationals that are sucking all of the money out of Australia and you know, giving chump change and saying that they're making jobs and just those kind of arguments? Do you think that they're up there with that? Well, it'd be so much fun, wouldn't it? To slap them all around, but uh, when we talk about it, we try to pull that emotion out of it and say, look, it's the system itself that is corrupt. And I read a fantastic article by Bill Moyers over uh, the weekend, and he was talking about this elaborate industry he called it the income defense industry and these are tax planners lobbyists philanthropists all the insiders that basically the one percent who have orchestrated the, the the tax loopholes and beyond that even the sculpting of our education system so people can spend their 50 60 grand on an economics degree now and not learn any of the sort of things we're talking about and in fact go on to do your masters and learn the exact opposite to the so-called free market ideology where I turn up to interview my old economics professor John Freeban and walk past a new lecture theater called uh, the Center for Market market design and this was essentially uh, as joseph stiglitz says um, mba graduates now learn how to lobby to put up barriers to put up fences around their business so no one can compete with them and so the whole economics profession has been corrupted and sure uh, property investors are um, part of that system in some way so are miners my god can you believe Mitch Hook got an order of Australia I cannot believe that I almost choked on my dinner last night and threw the the plate at the TV when I saw that that had happened and he said and hopefully my work has has put an end to bad public policy Oh, my God. Talk about flip out. Did you see that? Mitch Hook, the head of the Minerals Council of Australia, who decided that Gina Reinhart and uh, Marius Kloppers, the CEO of BHP at the time, um, deserved to make billions and billions of dollars and to basically um, destroy the most effective way to, to share this so-called common wealth of our, our minerals amongst us all. So uh, that's how um, embedded this system of what's known as rent-seeking is, where they they basically seek this magic money. So that tree of fruit you discussed, um, not only uh, does the tree grow without any effort, but then they grab all of those apples and um, con the news as if there are no apples left anywhere and make you beg at their feet to receive those apples and you will only pay for those apples if the price goes up at uh, 30% higher than what your wages can really afford. So that's what we're living in. Really depressing, yeah. Every time you hear it, you just there's another level of sinister to it. I mean, it just always seems like the easier target is always, you know, the financial institution, more as we just said before, miners. It's very eye-opening to learn that this is, yeah, as, as we were discussing before, that nobody really knows that this is going on. Everybody that I've, everybody that I've talked to about this as well at the Christmas dinner party, classic glazed-over eyes, really difficult to break this down into simple enough terms. 
that's what I think is really important about you guys is because just then, again, you've opened up another another point to this that I hadn't really considered before. But it's even more perverse than them kind of just getting the fruits of labour for absolutely nothing, really. And on top of that, hoarding the fruits of labour. <laughs> Making people beg for it back. And them not realising that, um, you know, that artwork, they, maybe even that Banksy graffiti tag that's in their community, that actually is, you know, Banksy, even someone as rebellious as him, is working for the landlords in those communities where he participates. And, you know, whilst some of these insiders understand this story, there are many of them who, when you use economic language, recognize that you're onto them. And all of a sudden, they will open up and say, look, Carl, I understand. You know, I've had the head of the Heritage Foundation, George Bush's favorite think tank, basically loving everything I was talking about because I can talk to him about lower overall taxes. But the problem we go at the moment is that all of the taxes that are set up have so many loopholes inbuilt in them, of which negative gearing is is just one, that this income defence industry has so beautifully um, set in place that uh, uh, they know that their time will be up sometime or other, but the fact is that so many people are um, uh, distorted by the latest footy score or the Kim Kardashians or whatever all that sort of jazz is. Um, that their attention span has has left the building, and somehow that they'd, they'd rather be racist than understand their own economic uh, disadvantage and what they can do about it. It's kind of bizarre in a world where we think um, we're all going to be wealthy and successful. That's a really odd point, isn't it? I don't know how that's kind of how did that gel like that. The fact that like it's much harder to keep down a job, keep your house, but everybody still has this. It's not even that they're going to win the lottery. It's just that someday they're going to be a millionaire by some inexplicable force. It's really odd that that's kind of just manifested in society as a result of this. I'm sure it's got nothing to do with that, but it just made me <laughs> made me think about that. But then the other thing that was uh, while, while I was um. While I was researching this, actually, I uh, started having an argument with exactly what you were talking about, the, the classic robot product of economic thought in university. And this guy was saying that, I don't know, again, do not know enough on the subject, but other people went in and they, they all had an argument. And it seemed like the other guys were winning at the time. I can't recall any of it except for the fact that this guy was saying that that the market is already fixing itself, that housing seems like it's unaffordable now, but it's just going to auto-correct. Um, and then he cited the Reserve Bank. Uh, and so, you know, at, at that point, I just started calling him names because I didn't know what else to do. But is that, like, does that actually work? Is, it just, is there any merit to that at all, that this, this market will sort of just... I don't know how he was even explaining it, but will this market auto-correct, or is it, if, if, if this was just set in place, if this policy was set in place as it is, is there just going to be more and more housing going to property investors naturally by just the way the game is set? Yes, well, that is unfortunately what looks like happening. Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh, my God. 
We've got to start investing in property. Fuck poor people. But you can't. In fact, for the first time in our history, over 51% of our generation will not be able to afford a house. So how many of them do you think will be able to start with nothing and buy up hundreds and hundreds of apartment blocks in the same area? Me, bros. I'll figure it out the way. Gen Y. It's like a Chinese symbol that has two meanings. Confidence and delusion. So how can we fix this? Oh wait, I know, because someone way smarter than me explained it to me. With a universal land tax. 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 Most economists in the world, left or right, agree that a universal land tax is the fairest, most efficient tax there is, because... Ready for another red pill? If everyone has to pay a certain percentage of their land value, say 2% a year, someone like Malcolm Turnbull would have to pay way more in tax on his mansion in Potts Point than someone like Tony Abbott, whose Gumtree.com fridge is now parked near the tent embassy. That's why I think it's time it should be demolished. They've got the good spot. And if it was set at just 2% of your property value, that would generate $92 billion worth of revenue. That's almost three times as much as the suggested GST hike. So just from that, no more deficit. You could also decrease the amount of personal income tax so it's completely offset because the rich would actually be paying their fair share in this instance. There is very little loopholes out of a land tax. Even Alan Jones thinks a universal land tax is an extremely good idea. And he was worried about climate change being a hoax, so benefit of the jail. And that completes the uh, interview with Friendly Geordies. There will be an extended segment on the podcast, so check that out in the next 24 hours. And visit the show notes at earthsharing.org.au. More commentary is always on prosper.org.au. But yeah, good to have Geordie on uh, the show discussing some of the, the key elements that people new to the story come across and and want more explanation of so if you do have questions please email me renegades at earthsharing.org.au on twitter at earthsharing uh yeah or there's the facebook group as well so uh you talking about facebook you see geordie on there i think he's got over two hundred and fifty thousand followers on his facebook group so it's friendly and then j-o-r-d-i-e-s so uh keep an eye on this talented comedian he's uh, quite something so my name's carl fitzgerald thanks very much for listening to 3cr's renegade economists you move you sway down like the branches Hi, I'm Kat from Cash Savage and the Last Drinks and Little Rabbit. I recommend you jump in and subscribe to 3CR because it's one of the few stations around that supports underground local music. Just $110 gets your band behind Melbourne's longest-running activist radio station. Discounts from local businesses and a recording of your live set. Get online at 3cr.org.au or call 94198377 and become a band subscriber. Swing work. Is, it just, is there any merit to that at all that this, this market will sort of just... I, I don't know how he was even explaining it, but will this market autocorrect or is it... If, if, if this was just set in place, if this policy was set in place as it is, is there just going to be more and more housing going to property investors naturally by just the way the game is set? Yes, well, well that is unfortunately what looks like happening. But what he's talking about is all of the um, housing supply that's coming onto the market, particularly here in Melbourne, but Sydney as well. There's, uh, you know... 
thousands of uh, sites have been rezoned and uh, uh, the apartment and building is going through the roof. But as our vacant housing report shows, that uh, when the rents you can earn on, on a, an apartment are some $18,000, $20,000 a year, but the, the price of that apartment has been going up some forty dollars to $60,000 a year, uh, for some long-term investors it makes less and less sense to, to risk having your wall kicked in. So whilst the vacancy statistics that we hear from uh, real estate pundits don't uh, look at the role of property investment, they only look at properties that are actually placed on the market now for rent, they don't look at any that are just held for capital gains, uh, this misnomer that we don't have enough housing continues to um, prevail. So Matthew Guy, the former planning minister here in Melbourne, he was well in bed with a lot of uh, property interests and I, I wrote something at the time saying I wonder if he's actually pandering to them by rezoning all this land and giving them you know, not just uh, uh, thousands of dollars but millions of dollars in handouts uh, or is he um, trying to uh, call these developers to account and really show whether all of this supply is going to push down the price? So that is playing out right at the moment. And here in Melbourne, apartment prices are starting to turn around. But will they be allowed to fall the 20 to 30% they're needed to to deliver long-term affordability? And that's the big question for 2016, if you ask me, is are politicians going to start saying that falling housing prices are a good thing? Because more and more people are starting to realise that this, this news cycle we get stuck in of rising property prices are good for all is now being critiqued by the thousands of people who are doing their own learning online, who are reading uh, you know, the alternative analysis that's out there. And so that's going to be one of the big plays of 2016. You know what the problem is, I think, about this subject? It's not that this information isn't digestible. It's that there's so much evidence supporting what you're saying, that it's kind of, uh, yeah, after you just kind of forget and you kind of just switch off after a while because you're just, you're so inundated with a new depressing fact. Kind of just reminds me of the first time I learned about climate change when I was 12 or whatever and then I was like, yeah, but some scientists say it won't happen so maybe, <laughs> you know, you just, you just hope that that's the case for a while. I think that might be the thing that happens with this when I'm talking to other people about it and they kind of, they say like, yeah, that's a, that's a problem, all right, but they don't, they don't think that, there doesn't seem to be enough despair for what the situation actually is. But um, mm. just just one more question about just, just other arguments that I've come across, which I actually think this argument might stump you, Carl. Mm. And <laughs> but maybe it's just because it kind of makes sense to me, which is it, it reminds me a lot of you know how the Americans spent millions of dollars trying to find a pen that could write upside down for when they're in space, and then you know the Soviets just went up with a lead pencil. It just seems to be this kind of a it's that kind of level, right? Mm. Anyway, there was some guy that was saying that yeah, that's just because everyone wants to live in Melbourne and Sydney. But if why don't you just move out to the country? Is essentially his argument. He's got a point. 
It's yeah, cheaper well, there. Well, that's exactly what we need, isn't it? We need decentralization. We need some of these communities um, to be reinvigorated with younger people who can work as graphic designers using this um, highfalutin NBN network to um, have Skype meetings and all the things we can do in the modern era. So that's exactly our point is that uh, there would be any, a decentralizing encouragement there would also be a urban densification in the city. So we, the sprawling aspect would be discouraged. So these are all things we need to have happen. So you're right, that, that is something that a higher land tax would do. And, you know, the fact that Australian land values went up $525 billion last year and $340 billion the year before that, well, people jump up and down that the corporate dividends are some $80 billion a year paid out to all the CEOs, all the insiders. But um, property owners, of which I am myself one, have benefited to the, the tune of that much money. And to run all three levels of government, you know, local council, state government, federal government, costs about $500 billion. So we could actually... Nominal, isn't it? We, we that could, single yeah. fact alone is probably the most infuriating. That that much of the economy is getting geared into nothing. Yeah. Essentially it just it's the same it's the same outrage people get with the thought of people in Wall Street just tinkering with numbers and in a supposed capitalist system where the more output you give to society you reap more rewards. It completely goes out the window. And that's the same with this property investment thing as well, I reckon. When you hear that that this could, are they always crying about a deficit and whining that they have to cut back on hospitals, which when you look at the evidence anyway, even in the state that we're in now, that's completely absurd. But so just the fact yeah. that all of that money is going towards, you know, the, the guy with the white teeth on the front of that podcast that's about, I don't know if I'm allowed to name it, so I won't, but just that that guy is taking our money <laughs> out of schools. is just makes you livid, I reckon. Yeah, it's carnage, <laughs> isn't it? And, yeah. uh, you know, all of this change happened back in the 1880s when um, this whole land story was pulled out of the, the core economics equation and we were told, look, all we need is labour and capital. Um, it doesn't matter uh, you know, basically, they don't need to work on any land. Um, and it was a, a, a response to the fact that everyday working people were cottoning on to what the aristocratic families, their advantages were. So um, way back then, you know, people would have two or three hour conversations on these very intricacies and would get right into the detail of which politicians owned what land where and why the train line was, was perhaps uh, going past their estate and those sort of things. And it was would lead to the downfall of governments. But here we have Eddie O'Beat in New South Wales and ICAC. I suppose that did contribute to New South Wales Labor's downfall. But it would be nice to think that some of the backroom dealings here in Victoria, around the country, around the world, um, had more influence on political outcomes. But um, friendly, a fascinating conversation. I wish we could keep talking, but that's about our time up, isn't it? Is it? All right. Well, it was good chatting, Carl. Any time.
Excellent, Friendly. Well, thank you so much and good luck terrorising anyone doing the wrong thing out there on the internet airwaves. Thank you. I'll need it. I was threatened to be sued the other day. Uh, Moral support is widely appreciated. (laughs) Excellent, excellent. Well, well done. That was perfect. Just what I needed. So um, thanks very much, buddy. I hope so. I wish I had some time to think about this more because it was actually like I I was racking my brains for more questions that came out to me when I was just arguing with people in comment sections and things like that. Mainly that, you know, just the, the three main arguments seem to have been just move out. That that ridiculous argument of like, oh, land tracks should just destroy, you know, retired aunties and that that kind of argument. And then you the other the one was like th- it's going to correct itself. That was those are the three I think. Well, the answer to that one about the uh, what we call a teary widow is that we could um, afford to double the pension. Uh, yeah, exactly. That, you know, so um, there would still be an incentive for them to take a tree change and decentralise, um, which would be painful and politically a big issue. But um, in time, we're going to uh, understand that the first generation to um, accept this enforced, well, basically this need to use locations more efficiently i mean why should the guy you know um earn you know the bread the bread own, the breadwinner have to spend 50 minutes driving each way to work past all of these uh you know rickety old homes with one person living in a three bedroom um you know mansion somewhere in the inner suburbs and it just doesn't make sense logistically when you think about uh the fact that not only is that happening but that person is is getting richer in their sleep for no other reason than uh first come first served it's so yeah it's such a weird argument, this, like a, a weird state of affairs, this property investment, the more I think about it, because it's not only, it seems to be like as sneaky as it is barbaric, there seems to be this kind of like, it's, it's quite simple at the surface, but, I mean, at, at the core of it, but yeah, as you were saying just in that, kind of just masked in all of these terms that make everybody feel like it's above their head. Mm, that's right. That is it, and uh, you know, economic uh, disease is you know the sort of snow job um, that it provides. And um, one of my few comedic lines when it comes to all this is, um, "Economist, um, he cons with mist." And and mist is seven stages more subtle than a snow job. That's like. If you go through all the different forms of precipitation, there's seven stages between mist and snow. <laughs> that's that's the that level is, of intrigue they've they've got over our minds. It's a really good way of describing it, I reckon. That that's that actually, yeah, you're right. That's like a it's it that's that's what I reckon is always the key when when trying to get these kind of messages out. Just the more <laughs> the more metaphors and the more like play on words you can chuck at the public, I really think that goes a long way. Mm. Thank you so much. Yeah, great.
Cheers. Hey, good luck. Well, what did you expect from a guy who's eating a raw fucking squid? So read the report at www.prosper.org.au. I guarantee you it will keep you up at night for days. However, seeing as none of you will, they also have a documentary that's available, Real Estate for Ransom. Oh, sick, our movie, okay. How the rich are ripping you off hundreds of thousands of dollars is a difficult to understand and extremely necessary subject for you to know. Do you really want to know? I want to know, man, you gotta tell me. Yo, Dazzle D, what's up with MC Untouchable? Man, he's vexed because there's no hip-hop on the airways, man. Still no hip-hop on the airways? No way, man. Oh, man. MC Untouchable, what seems to be the problem, man? The best music genre of all time, Aussie hip-hop, is about to make Mozart cry in heaven with the most hectic album drop since Walk a Kilometer in My Tennis Shoes, brackets. Yeah, I know it's supposed to be mild, but we use the metric system in Australia, so represent... Name Shanks. Ziggy Bummer's 42nd album, his most anticipated release since using the word cunt to describe my friends. Flame Shanks has got three bonus tracks that aren't about having sex with your mum, but there's 15 bonus tracks, so just as always. Going hard, Ziggy Bruh, hectic flat. I don't know if I kick that issue as hard as your mum did, I think there's still room to explore that issue creatively. In this album, Ziggy Bummer tries something experimental. Talking about how tough his life was in every track, but never making the connection between all the tagging he brags about and sniffing paint and not having good job prospects. 100% circumstance driven. Victor. The struggle, bruh. Struggle of asking people at the bus stop for a dollar. How's it going, brother? Oi, you got two dollars or? And then when they say they don't have any and pretend the king hit them as they walk away. And sometimes they turn around and then you say to them, What can? And that's the point, man. That's the point when you notice that they've realised you're an evolutionary offshoot of those Furukasaurus birds and walking with beasts. Hunting me in packs for wheat tanks. Featuring original tracks with Aussie hip-hop legend Piggybacker <laughs> on the smash hit You Gotta Hustle. Piggybacker back in the day used to play penis with his mate Ziggy Bummer, right? And that's pretty much the only reason why I'm famous now, yeah. You gotta... <laughs> Axo down seven thirteen fifty one Grand Metropolitan. <laughs>